Hello everyone, uh, welcome to the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies special series on digital authoritarianism. Over the past uh, few years, um, our institute has focused a lot of its efforts on looking at the rise of digital authoritarianism um, around the globe. And we want to look at its impact on human rights, especially in China, the Philippines, Russia, or Saudi Arabia. And this series, I want to say, could not have happened without the support of the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa and our colleagues at the U.S. Um, uh, consulate here in Montreal. And we want to thank them for their support. Um, we have already hosted four events as part of this series that seeks to shine light on how authoritarian leaders leverage technologies to crack down on civil rights and to commit human rights abuses. Today, in particular, we want to look at some of, of at how some of the technologies used by authoritarian regimes in China or Russia and Saudi Arabia end up also being used uh, and adopted by other governments, uh, including in Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, or Eastern Europe. Um, we also want to discuss how um, and what democracies and civil society and tech companies must or can do to stop the spread of digital authoritarianism. To discuss this, um, I'm very, it's my great pleasure to welcome Stephen Felstein, Jessica Brandt, Ginka Adoke, and Noura Al-Jizawi. Uh, I'm not going to go through their full bios because they're very long, but I'm, um, I'm gonna ask them to, uh, for two minutes or so, just briefly introduce themselves and um, talk about perhaps some of their research. Um, for, perhaps we're going to go with Jessica first. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks so much for having me today. It's a treat to be um, among this group and looking forward to all of your questions. Um, I'm Jessica Brandt. I am the policy director for the AI and Emerging Technologies Initiative at the Brookings Institution, um, where I run a new project um, called the Global Forum for Democracy and Technology. Um, and so we look at a wide range of issues that touch on democracy and technology at the nexus of those themes. Um, so issues ranging from, um, you know, inequality to security implications um, of emerging technology. Technologies. Uh, my own work focuses on the information competition between um, democracies, liberal democracies in particular, um, and uh, and authoritarian challengers, Russia and China um, in particular, uh, and how uh, democracies can push back. So I hope that's a uh, subject that we'll have a chance to dive into as we um, go through the conversation today. And really looking forward again to your questions and insights too. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Yinka. Do you want to go next, perhaps? Yes. Thank. Thank you for. Uh having me, uh, Mary. Um, my name is Yinka Adigoke. I am the editor for strategic initiatives at uh, Rest of the World. Rest of the World is a, a publication which covers uh, the impact of technology around the world. And, and um, this subject is very much in our, in our ballpark. It's one that we have covered on everything from uh, uh, misinformation to um, uh, the spread of uh, the two internet shutdowns and, uh, and all these related subjects. Uh, before this, I was um, the editor of Quartz Africa, where um, again, uh, this is perhaps where I first uh, came into contact with this subject. And, and unlike many other speakers who, who do all the original research, which I've probably reported about several times, um, for, for, for myself as a journalist and for other journalists, this um, 
area is one in which we're very interested in because we have a self-interest, um, both in terms of the, the, the stories about uh, what governments are doing, but also because it affects the way our own, um, what we believe uh, is fair and uh, accurate information is distributed and how it gets manipulated uh, on some of these platforms and with these technologies and frankly just gets blocked uh, from people. So this is, this is a subject in which we are, um, as journalists, we, 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 we almost, you could say we have a bias, we have a, because we have a bias towards uh, spreading um, accurate information. And um, I look forward to, to hearing about uh, the research from some of my fellow speakers, but also uh, sharing with you some of the things that we've, we've seen over the, the last few years. Nora, do you want to go next? And then we'll go to Steve. Um, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's my great pleasure to be here today. Um, my name is Noura Jizawi. I'm a research officer with Citizen Lab at uh, University of Toronto. Um, as you know, Citizen Lab studies the targeted digital threats and uh, on uh, journalists and the human rights defenders worldwide. Uh, currently, I'm working on multiple projects, including this is the biggest project is about the digital transnational uh, repression and targeting the dissident and the human rights defenders uh, here in Canada. Thank you, uh, Steve, last but not least. Great. Thank you as well uh, for having me. Uh, I really appreciate being on the panel uh, uh, with the others. Uh, my name is Steve Feldstein. I'm a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, I'm based in the, de uh, the Democracy, Conflict and Governance Program, uh, where I focus on issues linked to democracy, digital technology, and politics. Uh, so in my research, uh, I've looked extensively at different trends and patterns related to uh, digital repression uh, and published a book earlier this year, The Rise of Digital Repression, which uh, specifically tries to look at different factors uh, and reasons for why uh, governments are using certain technologies, whether it's surveillance, censorship techniques, sh internet shutdowns, disinformation, or otherwise, as linked to their political strategies. Uh, as also as part of the book, and just in terms of my prior work, I've done uh, a lot of field research uh, in countries like Ethiopia, the Philippines, and Thailand, uh, as well as Hong Kong, uh, to really kind of get a ground level uh, experience uh, and to understand uh, insights uh, from local activists, politicians, uh, company representatives, government officials about how these different trends are coming together. Uh, broadly, I have a background both in terms of uh, research as well as uh, extensive government service and spent uh, significant portions of my career working at the State Department, uh, the uh, Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, as well as USAID. I look forward to the uh, discussion. Thanks again for having me. As I mentioned in introduction, MIGS has been focusing on this subject for, for the past year and a half or two years. Um, looking at your own experience, when did you start noticing a trend in the use of technology to repress human rights in authoritarian countries such as China, Saudi Arabia? And then when, when did you start seeing spread into other countries? Uh, feel free to just... Um, step in when, when you want to answer. But I know, Steve, you, you, your book focuses a lot on this and when you when you decided to to write it. Sure, I'm happy just to uh, kind of cue off of that just on my own, quickly, my own personal experience. Uh, I mean, for me, it was it was really 
uh, at my last job in government, I was working uh, as uh, in the Democracy uh, Human Rights Bureau at the State Department. Uh, and I was really focused on uh, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, uh, and thinking kind of broadly about human rights violations taking place and different methods that governments were using. And what was really uh, interesting to me is I increasingly saw both how uh, dissidents, uh, chat opposition movements were organizing online and using different platforms, Facebook and Twitter, as a way to mobilize their followers, but also how governments were recognizing that this was increasingly becoming a challenge to the rule and were seeking tools to push back. And you know, a large part of the default tools, especially in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, have been pretty blunt instruments like internet shutdowns. Uh, but I also saw targeted persecution against uh, you know, digital influencers and people who are viewed as having particularly large followings. And then you start seeing also the influence of uh, different surveillance techniques, censorship, selective blocking of websites, and, and so forth. And so I became increasingly uh, concerned and troubled by what seemed to be this kind of movement away just from using physical tactics, you know, mass arrests, uh, you know, uh, charging people in courts uh, to much more of this kind of these digital techniques. And that's kind of for me was the entry point into trying to understand better, you know, the role of dissent uh, challenges uh, in the Internet and how that was all playing out in new ways around the world. My experience is actually from like a hands-on experience. Uh, I'm originally from Syria. In Syria, uh, we knew that the fact that the internet is being surveilled since we had the internet more precisely, uh, activists uh, and uh, citizens more generally uh, knew that all communication, including the internet, had been long censored and controlled under the uh, martial law. Uh, and when the government allowed the internet to get into the country and make, made it accessible for uh, citizens and somehow with a lot of barriers, uh, we knew that there is absolutely a surveillance system had been uh, set up. But then after a couple of years when uh, it was like becoming a fact and the proof was the mass detention campaign targeted uh, human rights defenders, activists, journalists and bloggers in relation to their uh, online activities, including myself. Uh, so it was like this happened between 2004 and 2006, um, and some of them until now are still uh, detained. And since then, uh, definitely the uh, the Syrian uh, government and the other uh, like following the steps of other uh, authoritarian regimes in the region were working so hard uh, seeking any kind of uh, sophisticated, more sophisticated uh, technologies to repress and to control the uh, the internet. You know, for me, it was maybe just shy of a decade ago that I was at the Brookings Institution tracking Russia issues, um, and I watched the um, increasingly sophisticated way that Russia used multiple conflicting conspiracy theories around events such as the downing of MH17 um, and the Skripal poisoning to really flood the zone um, and to sort of create the impression that the truth is unknowable um, and to crowd out the truth. Um, and so that was a real wake up call for me um, about the use of these tools and great power competition. Um, and it really sparked um, the research that I do now. For me, it, it again, it was it was in telling stories, in, in reporting stories and um, the first, the first, strange conversation that I had about um, about this issue was actually talking to a government official in Nigeria uh, at the peak of the Boko Haram um, uh, um, 
sort of at, when they kidnapped the schoolgirls and you know the whole world was up in arms and and uh, one of the regulators that I spoke to said, well, the thing we need to do next is to, we need to know what people are saying on WhatsApp and we need to be able to to read what people are saying. And, and that was kind of the first red flag, as they say, that um, the governments were thinking about this. And then as you uh, in the following years, you started to see with elections, the um, 2016 election in Uganda, and then there were some other ones that followed that you started to see there were, there were they were trying to do things like block social media or shut the internet down. Um, and, and, you know, because I cover Africa mostly, um, that has been a, a trend, which I'm sure we'll get into more, that um, has just sort of grown over the last few years. In terms of, you know, digital tools as seen by authoritarian leaders as a way to achieve kind of pre-existing or existing repressive goals, what kind of... Um, regional variations have you noticed um is it just a, a question of you know uh, uh, how are they adopting different tactics is it just a question of access to the technology a question of money obviously some countries are a lot low uh, a lot more low tech than than others um perhaps steve you, you've looked at different regions uh, uh yinka as well you look at uganda or ethiopia yeah, sure. Just just in terms of kind of the broader trends, what I've seen regionally. So um, one thing that's kind of worth noting, and, and I, I think, uh, Marie, you said it well in terms of kind of the linkage between pre-existing repression and digital tools is that the two regions, two to three regions that where you see the highest levels of digital repression prevalence uh, are uh, Central Asia, uh, the, uh, the Middle East, uh, and then also South, uh, South Asia. Uh, those are all three areas where there's enhanced levels across the board of um, surveillance, censorship tools, and 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 so on. Uh, and it also happens to be that this is where you see clustered uh, the greatest number of authoritarian regimes as well. Uh, conversely, where you see kind of the lowest prevalence levels uh, are Europe uh, and then uh, North and South America, uh, where you also have a greater level of of sort of democratic governments in play. Uh, and so that kind of just gives kind of one insight that there is such a strong relationship uh, in terms of regime type uh, and the type of political systems that people live in uh, and the types of tools then that they may or may not be sub subjected to. Uh, the other point just to kind of quickly mention as well is that there does seem to be a bit of regional copycat behavior that you see. And so often when certain types of tools are used, uh, you know, internet shutdowns is a great case in point in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, you see lots of other governments sort of emulating that behavior, uh, particularly when it comes to things like uh, political events like elections uh, or in conjunction with armed operations or so forth. And so uh, there does seem to be a, a bit of this kind of uh, imitation and watching uh, and learning, uh, when it, especially on a regional basis, when it comes to using different techniques and how that then proliferates and expands throughout uh, uh, these two geographic areas. Yeah, I, I love that point that Steve just made because... Um... That, that is exactly the way it played out in in sub-saharan africa as you started to see um like i mentioned earlier uganda 2016 then you had uh cameroon had their issues with uh separatists or supposed separatists and they shut down the internet in a certain section of the country um the english-speaking section of the country for, for 230 days um but you've seen it just sort of spread across the continent 
uh, Ethiopia has had uh, shutdowns uh, multiple times and, and is currently going through one in, in Tigray, in the Tigray region. Um, Chad had uh, the internet off for um, <clears throat> nearly a year and has had many shutdowns uh, since then. There's just been this, um, to that point about authoritarian governments um, and sort of uh the, the the organizations that measure the strength of your democracy democracy often has many even democratic uh, democratically elected governments in africa or sort of low on the list of uh, how strong their democracies are um you can see that the many of the countries are just getting more and more uh concerned about the fact or should I say the governments are getting more and more concerned about the fact that they are unable to uh, control the flow of information, um, ex, you know, tell, you know, tell people what they want them to hear. Um, and they're, they're trying a lot of different techniques. Um, there has been the internet shutdowns, but then they've also moved into trying to block specific apps, obviously, uh, Facebook being a key one, but also Twitter and, um, uh, WhatsApp where a lot of organizers, uh, sort of share information. So we're definitely seeing more of a trend in this direction. And it's interesting to me that as someone who grew up uh, many years ago when there were actually military governments in power, what's interesting to me is that there's there's also a link to this sort of these democratic events, um, specifically elections. Like it, it's almost as if um, there's a concern uh, that we sh that yes people can vote for whoever they supposedly want but we have to have some control control as to how this happens and we will use these tools uh to control that i'm happy to chime in just to maybe point out that when we think about some of the major um sort of actors in this space russia and china um i think you know it's important to acknowledge variation uh, at least between those two parties, um, you know, so Russia's, I think by many measures, a declining power um, that sort of pursues interference activity in order to compensate for its relative weakness. Um, you know, it has little to gain um, or little to lose, I should say, um, from sort of being exposed for um, some of its interference activities. And so um, it's considerably less risk averse. Um, it's sort of, you know, playing a near-term game. It's trying to disrupt the alliances um, and institutions and democratic processes, um, you know, in competitor states today, right now. Um, so on a short time horizon, and it's sort of like, its goal is, um, you know, is disruption. Um, you know, China, I think, is operating on a, you know, it's a rising power with a lot to lose um, from, you know, exposure in some of these activities. And so at least until recently, it's been at least on the information manipulation front, somewhat sensitive to attribution, although I think that there's evidence that's changing in the context of the coronavirus. Um, it's operating, it's playing a long game. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's seeking a world um, that I, I would argue is sort of safe for its interests um, and, you know, safe for if not converted to its worldview. Um, so it prefers a more stable order. It's a different long game. Um, so I think that that sort of, uh, it's important to bear that in mind because that has ramifications and implications for how both of these countries carry out their activities. Um, yeah, so a, a question that. that I have to, to follow up on this. Um, are countries such as China and Russia how much are they copying each other's tactics? And then 
how deliberately are they exporting some of their tactics and technologies to other countries? Or is it just a matter of economics and, and, and trade, basically? Is there a clear plan, for example, for China, who's, you know, involved a lot in sub-Saharan Africa to, um, you know, export some of these technologies? Um, is it just economics or are we seeing, you know, are they encouraging some kind of surveillance yeah. as well? Well, on that second question, I think the causes are uh, enormously complex. And Steve has a lot of thoughts about this, so he should come in on this question. Um, you know, but I think they vary from the conditions in sort of recipient states that make this technology attractive. Um, you know, I think, you know, China has um, certain like market incentives and then it has geopolitical goals. I think that, you know, as I said, China in particular is sort of trying to make the world safe for its worldview, um, which doesn't mean that like, it can export authoritarian norms um, and the technologies that I think provide um, sort of pathways to like um, uh, really sort of hardening those norms without sort of promoting a coherent um, sort of alternative model. So I think that that's just one important um, thing to note on this question of like, how much are they learning from each other? How much are they adopting each other's tactics? How much are they um, sort of deliberately cooperating? Um, you know, I think there's quite a bit of evidence that Russia uh, or that China is adopting some of, um, you know, Russia's information manipulation playbook. I'm thinking about like the coordinated use of multiple conflicting conspiracy theories to cast doubt on official versions of, um, you know, highly politicized events. So for example, the origins of the coronavirus crisis, right? A, an issue that's really of a high degree of salience to um, you know, to the Chinese Communist Party um, and to its interests. Uh, you know, the use of whataboutism techniques to kind of draw false equivalences um, and paint the United States as hypocritical, particularly on issues of race, the treatment of protesters. So, you know, after, you know, um, Black Lives Matter protests, for example, we saw, you know, like Chinese diplomats hammering, um, uh, really like trolling U.S. diplomats on, um, you know, on, on these issues and, and trying to kind of, um, you know, suggest that the U.S., you know, treatment of protesters is equivalent, um, uh, sort of drawing some lines to, um, in comparison to what was happening in Hong Kong at the time. Um, so those are a couple of ways that sort of China has been adopting Russia's um, more assertive information uh, tactics. But I think it's also really important to note that China's differently, because it's differently positioned, like has really taken on, you know, sort of several techniques of its own. Um, and I think those have gotten a little bit lost in the conversation. So at least one of those is, you know, manufacturing the appearance of popular consensus, right? Like China uses um, uh, what appear to be, um, you know, false personas, right? These are like handles that are um, numbers or they kind of follow the same pattern created around the same time. They use these false personas to really inflate the perception um, of popular backing for pro-China positions. And this is, I think, emphasizes the um, challenges of creating an echo chamber of support for its views on a platform that advanced at home. Um, and, uh, and also reflects China's interest in like um, presenting its model. Like China, Russia doesn't, Russian state media, Russia doesn't talk about Russia. It's not about presenting Russia in a positive light. It cares about denting the appeal of Western democracies. Um, China really does want to burnish its image and sort of dampen criticism of its human rights record. And so it uses false personas to do that. Russia does not engage with um, false personas in that way. 
Um, and there are other techniques as well, like co-opting hashtags that um, might be like around issues like Xinjiang, where there are critical conversations happening about China's rights record, um, among other tactics. But those are just a few. Just a quick reflection on uh, what's going on in the uh, MENA region uh, and specifically in the among the Gulf states, since we are talking a lot about uh, the uh, the influence of the regional affairs in adopting certain tactics. For instance, when we see like there is one uh, state in the Gulf started being like signing contracts or having uh, the services of NSO like UAE, we can see like the other alliance countries uh, will adopt similar technologies and start targeting dissidents uh, using this technology. And now if you want to just follow the map of these, all of these tactics, you can find like there's a lot of commonalities uh, among them. Uh, one state will influence the other states if they are in the same uh, in the same spectrum of alliance. So uh, when UAE, for instance, uh, will start creating similar to the uh, adopting and somehow the uh, China uh, Great Firewall, uh, the other uh, alliance states in the region like Bahrain and the Saudi Arabia will start adopting similar uh, tactics. Uh, and also now, if um, after all of these scandals of NSO, if one of these states will start uh, considering another uh, uh, supplier or another vendor, uh, we will have like by default the assumption that okay, other states are gonna follow these steps. So this is in somehow and uh, talking about the influence of Russia and China. Uh, you know, there is a lot in the MENA region. There is a lot of uh, proxy. Uh, crisis and uh, now you can see like there is uh, certain uh, states who are not in the spectrum of the alliance of uh, states who can access uh, the more sophisticated uh, technology while they have access and support by Russia, China and Iran uh, to, uh, to carry the, uh, the repressive operations. So, yeah, and somehow it's about how to adapt to new tactics and learn new uh, methods from the from each other. They are teaching each other, they are supporting each other. But on the other hand, it's in somehow about how to access the technology. But uh, yeah, again, there is uh, some kind of regional influence. Stephen, perhaps from, from you as well, is that, is that something, or, or Yinka, uh, something deliberate about some of the of, for example, China's um, policies. If you look, for example, if you, if they sell, if China sells a technology to, to uh, let's say Uganda, or um, is it in the fine print? So this is also how you can use it, you know, uh, uh, to to crack down on civil rights. Obviously, it's not going to be uh, that explicit, but you know, why do these governments then also in Southern Africa accept to use them? I was going to say that that. Um... You can sell anyone, any government or any person, uh, a tool, and it ends up being the question is how do they use it? Because very ma many of these tools are not explicitly designed to be used uh, uh, to um, in a, in a negative in a negative fashion, right? But uh, <laughs> the issue always is that if a, if a government, as Steve pointed out earlier, about that correlation between authoritarian governments and and uh and so and, and some of these uh, some of these tactics uh inevitably if you are a government that is concerned about um if you believe uh that you should 
remained in power since 1986, like President Museveni in, in Uganda. In, inevitably, when you when you buy a technology that uh, you know. China, for example, has supported many countries in Africa, not just Uganda, many countries in Africa in building out their, their 4G networks and, and uh, help them expand internet access and all the rest of it. But of course, um, when those uh, deals or arrangements are being made, uh, they, they can also sell them technologies that can be used to make sure that... Um, that the government can keep track of what's going on in their country. Um, sometimes they're built into the to to to, to the systems, or maybe they're add-ons. Um, it, it's it really depends. And, and what's interesting is that it's it's obviously not just China. It, um, uh, um, Nura just mentioned uh, NSO from Israel, but also there's uh, a, a lot a company called a lot from Israel as well, which. Um, sold technology to the Tanzanian government where they use it to sort of filter, um, you know, social media platforms uh, from being able to be used during the elections and, and, and soon after. So it, it, it really is, um, it, it really is about the government in power and what they're trying to achieve. And because some of this stuff is, is perfectly fine technology. It just depends on how the, how the, they use it, and I'm not sure that um, I'm not sh I'm not sure that the the, the seller can necessarily uh, demand that they only be used a certain way. But even if they did, the argument has always been with, particularly with the Chinese, that they they they, they are not concerned. They, they they mind their own business, so to speak. Uh, is what is the way they would uh, uh, frame it. Uh, just to to sort of add on. Uh... To, to what's been said, and I agree with all these different perspectives. I mean, I think it's a very, first of all, it's a complicated issue, and it's by nature, it's very opaque, and, and it really kind of depends in part upon which country and what kind of relationship they have with China in terms of how these tools are then subsequently used and carried out in, in different ways. Uh, I think in some places, it's, it's much more economic opportunism on the part of the Chinese and a sort of political need by the recipient government that kind of dictates what tools are then deployed uh, and in what form. Uh, I think in other situations, and I think Uganda was interesting where there's actually been direct reporting where you've seen Huawei consultants and technicians directly working with government authorities to arrest certain opposition leaders. There you see much more of a linkage between the Chinese operators on the ground, uh, the government repressive objectives and how those two can come together in very explicit ways. I think ultimately how I think about it is kind of a push-pull dynamic, which is something that Sheena Greetens and others have written about, uh, which is that, uh, you know, you have a push to some degree. Sometimes it's subsidized by the Chinese when it comes to providing different types of surveillance equipment, let's say. You also have a corresponding pull dynamic when it comes from particular countries and their own repressive agendas that they have uh, that they want to carry out. Uh, now, it's not oftentimes, when, especially when it comes to this pull dynamic, it's not just something that relates to only Chinese technology, uh, you know, Israeli technology, technology from European countries and from the United States uh, are also very much involved in this uh, ecosystem as well. So it is pretty complicated. And I think it extends beyond just a simple kind of Chinese exploring repressive tools. Therefore, they get used to repress individuals. I think there, it, there is more nuances at play when it comes to how this uh, uh, manifests itself. Nora, I know, I know the Citizen Lab uh, looked 
quite extensively at the NSO Pegasus, Pegasus um, surveillance um, kind of scandal and tools. Um, how much does this, um, you know, in, in this instance, how much does this tell us about how widespread uh, digital authoritarianism and its tactics are around the globe? And how much is this, perhaps, is digital authoritarianism shifting the global power balance between uh, democracies and autocracies? Yeah, the first thing come to mind now, just like democracy is definitely under attack. Um, and here, I, I guess I have three dimensions in mind. Uh, first of all, like democracies uh, have been under attacks. Uh, in the modern uh, arena since uh, they, there were uh, democratic changes attempt uh, and they were cracked down using uh, while autocrats around the world were taking advantage uh, of the uh, technology uh, supplied to them through uh, companies based in the uh, West liberal democracy. Um, secondly, yeah, definitely the uh, a decade ago or more, uh, all of these debates around the uh, the hope uh, around the internet and social media and bring, bringing democracy to uh, countries under authoritarian system, whereas the few voices were raising alerts around the uh, how the authoritarian regimes are taking advantage of all of these democratization tools uh, were not being heard until it's too late and until now we are the world is struggling how to regulate the social media and the cybersphere and how to prevent the uh, narrative manipulation how to combat the uh, disinformation we need to keep in mind that all the time unfortunately the uh, global authoritarian regime are taking advantage of the de democratization tools and uh, definitely uh, democracy is under attack. And third, uh, this is a very painful in fact that years ago when the very first reports about the authoritarian regimes uh, targeting uh, digitally the exiled activist, uh, what, uh, what Marcus Michelson called uh, first digital authoritarian, uh, digital transnational repression, sorry. Unfortunately, democracies failed the dissidents. They failed people who are uh, on their soil, who are immigrants, refugees, or uh, citizens, uh, and who are uh, supposed to be protected under the jurisdictions of these uh, countries uh, while they were targeted by the authoritarian regimes using the uh, most sophisticated digital tools. Uh, and yeah, as Young uh, said, it's not only about uh, NSO, it's about many vendors around the world, who are uh, running to sell all of these sophisticated technologies to the authoritarian regimes. And yeah, unfortunately, no action was taken to stop and prevent these threats. Targeting one single person means like targeting and revealing the entire community around this person, might be anyone sitting uh, between us now uh, and their uh, device being compromised. So all of our discussions and all of this, any kind of information would be like exposed again to these authoritarian regimes. Uh, yet we found like these tools used not only to target activists and dissidents uh, domestically and abroad, uh, and this kind of silent led until like recent scandals uh, about NSO 
uh, and uh, the heads until the heads of democratic uh, countries uh, were targeted using the same technology used for decades uh, or a decade, sorry, to target the dissidents, uh, like the attempt uh, already uh, the leak and the reports about uh, targeting President Macron. So yeah, it's it's weaponizing and uh, the uh, digital sphere. It's giving a lot of advantage to autocrats to attack and authoritarian regimes to attack uh, democratic countries, uh, people who are aiming to make change, whether they are their own citizens who live domestically or who are beyond the borders. Um, and no one knows what's coming next. Question coming in the chat that we also wanted to, um, that we agreed to uh, talk about today. Um, what should governments um, and tech companies do to prevent the export of, of dual use technologies, for example? And we know a lot of these technologies are actually being um, manufactured in, in the West or and sold by Western governments. Um, how should, what should, you know, governments do to prevent the, the, the use of, of these technologies by authoritarian governments? And the sale, obviously. Happy to come in on this. I mean, obviously, I think, you know, Western governments need to place limits on the sale um, uh, of technology that enables surveillance um, or the interception of, uh, of communications. Um, I also think it's incumbent on governments to think broader. Um, and this is like a very strong argument for um, the adoption of updated legal frameworks for data privacy and data protection. Um, so, you know, governments can place limits on the types of information that companies, um, you know, can collect and then require them to disclose what they plan to do with that information and what third parties um, will have access to that information um, and what those third parties will be able to do. Um, because that is, I think, an important and maybe sometimes overlooked um, piece of this puzzle. And then, you know, what can governments, uh, sorry, what can companies do? You know, I think it's everything from, um, you know, um, resisting the urge to comply with um, with shutdown orders. Um, it, uh, you know, I think is incumbent upon companies to provide, um, you know, real transparency, meaningful transparency around, um, you know, the kinds of requests that it receives um, from governments that are understood to be less than wholly free in particular, but I guess not, all, not, not, all, not solely. Um, and then I would just say like for platforms, um, you know, one thing platforms could do is really provide greater transparency around their content moderation decisions. Um, you know, I think it would be, you know, useful for platforms to really provide clear and like in one place comprehensive information about how um, they're making these decisions um, and, you know, sort of provide um, processes for appeal because we know um, that content moderation can be, you know, a tool um, that governments use to uh, repress speech. So those are some of my thoughts, but I think others probably have uh, many more. Yeah, no, a couple, a couple ideas. Um... So, you know, one, I think companies have obligations that many don't adhere to when it comes to the UN guiding principles, which lays out pretty comprehensively, you know, the type of due diligence requirements that are necessary ahead of time when determining whether there's a possibility of maluse of their equipment, uh, as well as kind of ongoing monitoring and the ability to kind of claw back uh, the use of these technologies when there's um, documented evidence that they're being uh, used uh, uh, in, in uh, abusive ways. And so, 
you know, often when uh, groups like NSO group uh, firms uh, along those lines that provide spyware, when they justify these sales and say either A, it's out of our hands or B, we didn't know about it, uh, that flies against the evidence and what is already inscribed upon legal standards in terms of their own obligations. So I think certainly companies uh, and governments can push companies to do more uh, in accordance to an agreed upon set of principles that most at least pay lip service to. I think a second issue, which is more complicated, especially for companies, is this notion of hostage taking, where uh, a lot of company, a lot of governments are passing, uh, you know, local representative requirements, uh, and are directly threatening uh, companies that don't adhere, especially when it comes to taking down certain types of content or leaving up other types of content. Uh, they threaten them with getting booted out of the country or completely losing their market share. And so we saw this recently happen when it came to the Russian government pressuring Google and Apple uh, to kick out of their app store a voting app by Navalny uh, that was being used to sort of help uh, Russian citizens make voting choices in the most recent Duma elections. And there, the, uh, what's come out in reporting is that the Russian government threatened criminal prosecution of Google and Apple employees in country if they didn't comply. And so you see where it's, it's, there is also this, this sort of limitation where companies feel increasingly in certain markets uh, that they have less and fewer options in which to push back. And so that's where I think uh, it becomes really important for democratic governments to stand behind some of these companies that are facing these types of authoritarian pressures and say, you know, there will be a, a corresponding price to pay every time a Turkey uh, or a Russia uh, or a Uganda or a Nigeria uh, puts in place these types of pressure tactics against platforms that are intended to suppress voices and use very illegitimate tools as a means to do so. Yinka, do you want to, to add anything? To be honest, I don't have a, a strong view, but I, I, I have an almost, um, almost a, a frequent question, which, it's just about what has happened. What's what has happened before? What's the precedent here? And I and I'm comparing this in my mind when I think about uh, selling tools. I'm thinking. I think about arm sales. Like, what are the rules with arm sales? Right? Um, did, can you? Uh, there are all sorts of rules in place for the United States, for example, selling weapons to uh, you know um, countries in in Africa and the Middle East. Uh, what 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 are what are the should we have those types of rules um, where they make sense uh, when it comes to digital technology? Can there be some sort of um, UN style type agreement on on what should be allowed and, and not allowed, or does it have to? Um, and I'd be interested in what the other panelists think. Really, like does it would it have to just be company by company, country by country, or, or is there something? Are there some sort of broad set of of rules and agreements that, that can be drawn up on the way these technologies, um, these types of types of technologies in certain categories can be used. Because um, as, as I said before, as other speakers have said, you know, once you hand something, once you sell something to someone, there's there's no sort of, uh, you have no control over how they, they choose to use it. Um, so the, the question then is, should you, should they be allowed to um, sell to them in the first place if they are, say, an American company or an Israeli company or, or whoever? Yeah, the question is, obviously, do we need to reinvent the wheel and find something new or, or are there pre-existing 
laws, international laws that we can that we can use, especially in terms of of of, of due diligence. But also another question that I wanted to address that's in the chat is um, social media companies uh, recently helped um, Afghan human rights activists and journalists protect their accounts for fear of persecution. So what do you think, what lessons can be, can be drawn from, from this that, you know, sometimes social media companies, when they have the will, they, they find ways to do it? Or is it, you know, is it, is, do they just select which ones the, they want to, uh, to tackle? First, Nora, you want to say something on this since you perhaps observe the region, so the region a bit more. I, I agree with all what uh, the other great panelists have been uh, like referring to and raising some recommendations. Uh, also, I, I guess since we already have the guiding principles, uh, we need probably to push and advocate more towards having a practical framework, uh, some monitoring mechanisms, and um, some accountable like some tools and mechanisms of accountability i always advocate like without accountability uh, we will never have uh, the chance to uh, push the uh, the companies and people who might like think they can uh, have immunity uh, with the thing that they are doing uh, without accountability we'll never have better place for all of us um, talking about social media companies, um, I guess there's a lot of uh, debates about what uh, can be done and, and specifically to uh, protect the uh, activists and uh, human rights defenders who are uh, at risk. Uh, the thing that they did with the Afghan activists, it's great, but also, uh, as you said, uh, it's really the question, is it when they have the will? And uh, is it applicable to all activists under risk or uh, it's an elective? Uh, and uh, yeah, what are the, uh, the boundaries here? While until now, for instance, I, uh, I always feel like uh, heartbroken whenever I think about Abdurrahman Sathan. Uh, who, uh, who was the uh, human rights activist who was tweeting anonymously from Saudi Arabia, whereas uh, Saudi Arabia had two spies working for uh, the government in Twitter. Uh, and these two spies now are enjoying their, uh, they fled. Uh, they are uh, in the Saudi Arabia, they are running their own businesses while uh, Abdurrahman Sathan is still behind the bars. Uh, what kind, and this is the question for all social media companies, what kind of majors and uh, policies that they developed since then, uh, not only just uh, reporting to the uh, FBI and having all of these, uh, these two uh, bad actors on the, one, uh, on the list of uh, people who are wanted, but uh, how they can control that and how, uh, in the first place, people uh, in the MENA region, for instance, will feel safe uh, with their data uh, might be accessible through the uh, the MENA region hub in the UAE, what kind of uh, policies and measures would be taken by social media companies to prevent the human breach of such data? Um, and yeah, we can spend days talking about the automation and how to respond to the other uh, attempts of manipulating social media, uh, the narrative over social media and so on. But yeah, since we refer to the Afghan activist with the uh, serious uh, risk, 
So it's also about what kind of uh, risk might uh, the uh, activists have been facing through the, the leaks um, and uh, like what happened to Abdurrahman Sathan and absolutely for uh, what happened to others, uh, we are not lucky enough to hear about them because for many reasons, because even themselves, they didn't know about that. Just found themselves behind the bars. I also want to address a question here now that we're talking about civil society groups and what, what can be done. Um, Beatrice Lecrot on, 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 on in the chat asked, uh, Pegasus and other stories uh, reached a wide range um, of the public through media coverage to denounce um, digital surveillance. How can we build um, public protests to push for more political action? And that's also I want, a question that I wanted to raise is, what is the role of civil society groups and journalists in, in debates over not only regulations, but how can they also play a, a role in this in this debate and, and actions uh, against you know the use of these technologies uh, to commit human rights abuses? Yeah, this is uh, for journalists, and I, I'll, I'll try and tag on the, the journalist part of the question. For journalists, this is, uh, like I said earlier, this is an incredibly important topic um that because we are because it is the story we're telling but we're also part of the story because uh, journalists like activists are some of the the primary targets of, of some of these uh digital surveillance um we we definitely I mean, from a storytelling point of view i the thing i have tried to do mostly is to make sure we prioritize these stories, that we um, we raise awareness of what's going on and, and move beyond. Because if, a lot of the coverage of what's been happening is kind of focused on um, sort of the bigger companies, you know, your Facebooks and what have you, and rightly so, um, but mostly because they're, they're big companies. But what we, we, we need more of as well as talking about the big companies is, is just really raising awareness of this as a broader issue because um it's not going away uh where where we're going to see a lot more of it uh coming down coming down uh on on activism particularly particularly in um in non-democratic countries but also for journalists as well who who for for you know for for years for decades uh journalists have have always been uh under under the spotlight but um, these new technologies just make it easier to um, uh, repress other actors um, against uh, regimes as well. Yeah, I, I guess I would just say, you know, echo what you guys just said and, you know, note that journalists obviously play an incredibly important role um, in speaking truth to power and in keeping citizens informed. Um, and I think, you know, one of the ways that we know about the widespread use of unaccountable surveillance technology um, and the crisis that it's creating for human rights is because of organizations like Nora's um, who do, you know, incredibly powerful investigations and they work with journalists to get that information out to the public. And so, you know, the first step 
um, I think toward building um, a movement for change is building widespread public awareness, um, you know, of of what's underway. And I would just also footstomp what Yinka said about, you know, the the targeting, the deliberate targeting of journalists and activists because of the role um, that they play or can play in uh, in pushing back on these activities. And you know, I just think one thing to bear in mind is like one of the ways that Russia's um, sort of playbook is evolving and maturing um, is to increasingly try to, um, you know, sort of use uh, or like paint its activities as um, the authentic advocacy of like local domestic activists and journalists. Um, and that's partly to evade detection. And it's partly because of all of the very complicated dynamics that that raises um, for platforms and for governments who try to push back. Um, so, you know, I think this is sort of a protected class um, that's doing incredibly important work. Um, and as a researcher, I guess it would be, I would be remiss not to say that I think, you know, the research that, that's done on this space, um, I think is incredibly important in building movement for change. Steve, I, I know you've looked at different regions um, in your research. What kind of civil society movements um, have, you, have you seen that are pushing back? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the, you know, just as we talk a lot about the downsides of technology and the way that governments are exploiting uh, these tools for new surveillance methods and, and so on. I mean, I think the flip side is that there really is a lot of vibrancy that has been unleashed as a result of being able to mobilize, gather together online and to report on news in, in different ways. And a couple, you know, things that came to my mind, uh, you know, is, is first of all, I mean, it's a number of the outlets such as Yinka's, you know, the uh, uh, rest of the world, which I regularly access and, and read, uh, and, and, and I get sort of new insights that I never would have been able to access, I, I think, even a decade ago, I think speaks to the ability of um, broadening the, the network out to areas that have been underserved, uh, that have, had, have not had the same level of reporting. I mean, this is kind of what we're seeing. This is what's new. And so rather than just speculate about what the effect of certain types of technology are uh, in, in countries that have gotten less attention, we now have ways to actually uh, obtain and see this information uh, in, in new dimensions. I think another aspect too that's really interesting is that there has been kind of this shift uh, beyond just formal journalism, investigative journalism, as a way to understand and piece together accountability for actions taken by governments. And so I think about citizen activists, citizen journalists outfits like Bellingcat, uh, which have really pioneered the use of open source intelligence that have been able to work through citizen sleuthing uh, and, and you know, reliance on different social networks. They've been able to unearth some pretty um, uh, damning and, and abusive actions taken by governments like Russia's when it comes to the scripple poisonings or the downing of the Malaysian Airlines. They've been able to use this information online and new and new and unique ways to provide much more truth uh, and much more uh, reporting out there for issues that otherwise would have just been opaque and behind uh, you know a, a, a wall. And so, in that that extent, I think we are seeing kind of this opening up uh, in bigger dimensions around the world and in different regions when it comes to reporting on issues and and ultimately holding governments to greater accountability standards because they know they can't hide to the degree that maybe they could in the past. 
Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for, for joining us today. Once again, I want to thank you. Uh, thank you and thank the US Embassy in Ottawa for their support, as well as my colleagues, uh, Callum Matthews and Lauren Salim. The next event in this series is going to take place on the 18th of November. So if you want to sign up, you can uh, go on our website and sign up to, for, for a newsletter or um, and you'll be informed about how to uh, register. Jessica, Nora, Yinka, Steve, thank you so much. We'll be, uh, we'll be in touch because MIGS is going to continue its work on this important subject. We also want to look at how, you know, next generation technologies will be used by digital authoritarians. Uh, so thank you so much. And um, thank you to our audience for joining us today.